So she's not giving very much back in this relationship. Okay. And so he's not getting many needs met in the relationship either. Well, one thing he, he and as a result of that, we say he has some pain himself, and maybe he also has some of this pain from family of origin, and uh, so he's carrying that. He's hurt, too, in this relationship. But one thing he does learn is that these problems contribute to her drinking, that, that when she's into her problems, then she's more likely to drink. Okay, so like let's say one of the problems is a financial problem. There's just not as much money hanging around the house as there used to be. And when that's brought to her attention, she gets quite upset about that. And whenever she gets upset, you can be sure she'll go drink within a short period of time. So from where he sits, it looks like these problems are causing her to drink. And so it starts to occur to him, maybe if she didn't have these problems, she wouldn't drink. Does that make sense? I mean, you see the logic in this? She wouldn't get upset if she didn't have these problems. And if she's not upset, uh, then she's not likely to drink. So uh, I sure can't connect with her when she's upset. That upsets me too. But maybe she'd be happy if I helped get rid of some of these problems. And so he gets involved in her problems. So he gets all involved in this stuff here, trying to remove these problems from her so she won't get upset. So he takes over some of her responsibilities at home. Let's say she used to cook, now he cooks. Uh, she used to get the kids ready for bed, now he does that. Um, she used to cut the grass, now he does it. He, he's trying to soften her experience of the hard edges of life, you might say, so she won't get upset. The boss calls in at work, where is she today? And he takes care of it. Oh, she's sick, I'm taking her to the doctor. Um, she gets a legal problem and, and he gets all involved in, in handling it for her. And as a result of that, uh, she's very grateful for that kind of attention. Okay, so it works in a sense. When, when he rescues her from some of these problems, she is glad about it. And so he figures, he learns pretty quickly, this is a way to connect with her, is through her problems and managing her problems. So this is a kind of an intimacy that develops in this kind of relationship. Well, where is his attention in this relationship? In a healthy person, it's me to you and feeling to feeling, thought to thought, person to person. In an unhealthy relationship, he's, he's got an eye out for the whole field of circumstances that surround her life, her consequences, her problems. So he's looking out for that all the time. Now, as this is going on, he, he, and he's getting some, you know, some, some kind of positive return on it, uh, the one thing that he doesn't see really clearly is that this doesn't stop her from drinking. 
His delusion is that it will, but it doesn't. Why doesn't it make her stop drinking? Well, because the reason an alcoholic drinks is not because they're trying to escape problems. The reason an alcoholic drinks the way they do is because they're an alcoholic. Now, if you got that logic, you know, then we're on pretty good ground together. Alcoholics drink the way they do because they're alcoholics. And so if they don't have a problem to drink about, then there's a whole lot of other reasons to drink, right? Like euphoria. So we're not going to drink for relief today. My husband took care of that. Therefore, I can go out and just have a plain old good time, which is what I want anyway, to have a good time and no responsibilities and no consequences. That's addiction in a nutshell. Does anybody in here identify with that attitude? <laughs> it's a pretty common attitude, isn't it? To have a good time and no responsibilities and no consequences from this good time. I mean, I've, if, you know, I smoked cigarettes for 10 years and it's uh, exactly what I wanted with my smoking was uh, don't tell me about lung cancer and all that, you know. Uh, just uh, tell me this is good for me, that it's like oat bran or something and uh, that's what I want to hear. So she doesn't stop drinking. So he has to figure out what next to do, how to keep trying harder and harder to make her stop drinking so that they can have a kind of intimacy again. And in some cases, he may be trying to manage her, her whole lifestyle, uh, not only to, to have more intimacy, but to have less abuse. Okay, that, that's a very big part of it in some of these relationships is a real definite abuse factor. So maybe I can't get anything good out of this relationship, but if I can at least cut down on the abuse, especially the verbal abuse, which is the worst kind. I mean, physical abuse is really bad too. I don't want to minimize that. But in most relationships, it's the verbal abuse that, that really takes its toll. The day in and day out, name calling and judging motives and scapegoating and all that kind of stuff is what kills us. And that's what contributes to his pain, too, is all this abuse. So he keeps trying. You know, you have to keep trying and trying this thing and that thing. Hiding all the bottles, not letting them know about the uh, invitation to the party we got. He's got some delusions, too. His delusion is, I can fix this relationship if I can just keep tinkering with the circumstances in it. I can fix it. That's one of his delusions. Another delusion, uh, delusional belief uh, becomes uh, uh, this person's needs are more important than my own. Taking care of them, that may even think that's a loving thing to do. Their needs are more important than my own. Okay, so this is what we saw in treatment centers. These people were coming in and generally, this person also had a wall of defenses. Uh, old Bill had his defenses, too, so that when a family member would say, Hey, Bill, how you doing? What would he say? Fine. How's it going with uh, Sally? She looked like she was a little drunk at the wedding reception. <laughs> oh, everybody had a few that day. I had a few myself, and I noticed you did, too. Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, we used to go uh, hunting and fishing a lot, and I hadn't seen you out there lately. I know, I got other things to do. As this whole process continues, the codependent person becomes more and more focused on 
the chemically dependent person, they begin also to have all kinds of problems coming out of this relationship. Uh, the, major, the first one of which is they start giving up their own likes, the things they enjoy doing for the sake of the relationship. So let's say he used to like to go fishing, he doesn't do that anymore. He starts giving up his natural highs, starts having more low self-esteem, uh, may also have physical diseases developing out of this, stress-related physical diseases, may also have uh, legal problems of their own, financial problems, problems with work. Uh, you get the same kind of situation on both sides here, and, and so it was kind of a mirror addiction, where codependency is mirroring the chemical dependency. And so this is what we saw in treatment centers, and this is what we presented to them, and uh, then we could go on and draw what's happened to the children in this family to complete the picture, how they cope with this situation. And, and uh, as we present these lectures, people are sitting there saying, yeah, that's me, and that's what happened, and finally this all makes sense. So like I say, they've been voting with their pocketbooks and their feet because uh, this makes sense to them. They see their lives presented, and they see how these dynamics work. Okay. Now this particular type of codependency is what we mean by the caretaking type. And caretaking types of codependencies happen when we find ourselves in a relationship with a person that we perceive ourselves to need uh, for the sake of our own well-being and harmony. And because we need that person or need something from them and we're not getting it, then we try to get them restored by managing some circumstances in their life so that they won't have problems and maybe they'll be grateful to us. So we rescue them, we take control of situations, we do for them what they should do for themselves. Okay? The name we give to this kind of caretaking is called enabling. I know that has a very different connotation in ministry. But in, uh, in the field of addiction, enabling means you're taking the responsibility for another person's problems or responsibilities or duties or obligations. You're taking over from them what they should be doing themselves. And it doesn't help them get better. It helps them get worse. That by removing these problems from Sally, Bill is actually enabling her to get worse in her alcoholism. And you say, how does he do that? Well, because she doesn't have any consequences to deal with from her alcoholism. And, it, and, and consequences are, the, or you might say, God's gift to any addict as a way of turning this destructive process around. When we remove from people the consequences of their behavior, we give them permission to get sicker. In fact, we're supporting them in their sickness. And we're getting sick, too while we do that. So that's what enabling is, and that's what caretaking kind of codependency is. It's a very common type of codependency, and you'll find it in a variety of situations. Uh, certainly in, in a marital relationship where addiction develops, you will almost always find a caretaking type of codependent response develop. In a parent-child relationship where the child begins to move in some kind of a destructive way, or destructive path. 
uh, you'll find codependency happening as we, we try to do something to call this person back. You can even find this in a working situation. I don't want to say even, as though that's a great exception, but suppose you're in some kind of a group entrusted with some kind of a project, and one of the people in the group is not really pulling their weight. Okay? But the group has to get this project done, whether that person is pulling their weight or not. What do the other people have to do? They have to, in a sense, take over some of those responsibilities that rightly belong to this person so that the project will come out, because if it doesn't come out, that affects you. That's always the bind that the caretaking codependent finds themselves in, as if, if I don't do something, this is really going to mess me up too. If I don't do something to get this alcoholic to stop drinking, I'm going to get worse. I'm getting sick, so I got to do something. And we say that about our coworkers. If we don't do, okay, they're a lazy bum. Maybe we'll be able to talk about that someday with the boss. But if, if they don't do something, if they're not going to do it, then we're going to have to do it. Because if we don't get it done, well, that's bad for us. So this, this happens in many, many situations. And, and that has been the news of the last five years, is seeing how this little model here is applicable in a wide variety of situations. Maybe this is also, maybe, maybe Bill can be identified with, uh, uh, you might even say, a person in the pew. And Sally could be identified with, uh, let's say, the pastor. Let's say the pastor has some kind of a problem and the congregation is enabling that problem to get worse through caretaking kinds of responses. And there have even been some books out on that, how codependency comes into the church and affects us. So there's a wide variety of applications here. Generally, if we have codependency in one of our relationships, it will show up in almost all of our relationships. Even our relationship with God will bring something of codependency into that wanting to do good things for God so that God will give us something in return. That's probably a major contributing factor in the whole theology of salvation by works, is a codependent mindset that, that says you, you really have to, to give God something uh, for God to give you grace. There's a conditional love factor at work there. Another couple of things that have happened in the last few years is to see that you know, there's an even wider application of codependency uh, beyond the caretaking types. The second one on page two, well, well first let's say caretakers relate to others primarily through roles that put them in a position of the giver, helper, supporter, nurturer. Everyone's needs are more important than my own. And as we say, this person often gets into that because they are tied to another unhealthy person. Uh, and that unhealthy person is adversely affecting their life. And they don't want that to continue, so they do all that they know how to do. They try to fix the relationship. The romance and relationship addiction is another kind that's not quite the same as caretakers, but it's a form of codependency. Uh, Anne Wilson Schaefer writes about that in her, her recent book on addiction and intimacy. That's not the title. I think the title is Escape from Intimacy. Okay. This is a person who must be in a relationship and must be special to someone in order to be okay. They may use caretaking and sexuality to gain approval and acceptance, and they go from relationship to relationship. So that 
I'm not okay with myself. Other people make me okay. Uh, if I'm not in a relationship with someone who's making me feel special, then I'm not okay with me. And that's where relationship addiction starts. And so how do I keep you interested in me in this relationship? Uh, that's where I may get into some caretaking and maybe some inappropriate sexual activity. Um, compromising my values in a variety of ways so that you will not get rid of me. We call it a type of codependency because, again, it's uh, making our happiness and unhappiness uh, the result of how other people treat us. We're placing that in their hands. This is the same thing that happens to the caretaker. And then there's the final type, which is uh, not as, as, I guess, well known, although there are a couple of books on it. One called The Messiah Complex, or it's called When Helping You is Hurting Me by Carmen Rene Berry. This is a person whose uh, well-being is focused, well, well their well-being is determined not by one person in a special relationship, but by being in a, quote, special relationship with a group of people. The Messiah is the savior of the family, savior of the church community, savior of the world, even. They are very over-responsible. They frequently don't ask for help when they need help, and they try to make themselves indispensable. They are needed by this group, and that's where they get their feeling of being okay. Uh, this group can't make it without me. And they will do everything they can to set up their job in the group so that that is in fact true. Generally by sitting in the middle of the information these days is how we do that. We have information that no one else has, but they need. <laughs> so uh, we're special and indispensable and needed and therefore okay. The Messiah also has a, a burden of over-responsibility. They feel if I don't do it, it won't get done. So they can frequently overwork. Again, these three types uh, are different enough that they deserve separate kind of recognition. But frequently you find them all active in the same person. Certainly the first two types, caretakers and relationship addicts, uh, you almost find, always find those two together. Although you can certainly find caretakers who are not relationship addicts. So that like when a relationship ends, um, they won't necessarily run to another relationship quickly, like a relationship addict will. I have a family member who's a relationship addict, for example, and when uh, one relationship ends, even if it's gone on for 18 months, within two weeks, he'll be in another one. And, oh, this time it's the perfect person, you know. This time, I, I don't know why it took me so long to find this person. And that'll go on for a while and, you know, of course, a few months down the road, it's not so good anymore. And it's over, and then they're quickly into another relationship. So not, but not all caretakers do that. Sometimes the relationship will end for a caretaking type, and they'll just kind of, you know, be hurting and wounded there and uh, won't rebound into another. Uh, maybe they'll start caretaking their children more or their grandchildren or everyone at work or something like that. Okay, I'm going to stop there because I, what I've laid out here is just the basic concept of codependency 
uh, as we understand it in the field of addiction and recovery, uh, not just the concept, but the dynamics are laid out. And uh, to see if, first of all, you're with me or you're following what I've presented and uh, what might be some questions you would have that would help to clarify this some more. You can talk about anything. Anybody have anything? I'll give you a moment just to think. Yes? I can see Kai is developing in the nature of religious obedience to a superior. You know, uh, if you're asked to do something and, and you don't feel like you really are qualified for that, but on the other hand, you feel like the vow of religious obedience says you have to do that, you have to say yes to that. I can see some of those conflicts entering into that and regard to religious life. Does that seem true? Let Father Santa answer that question. <laughs> well, it would certainly make a difference if the superior was a healthy or unhealthy person. And if the obedience that was being asked for was being done in a healthy or unhealthy way. I mean, you can conceive of a situation where even a healthy superior sometimes would just need to tell someone, I need you to do this at this time in our community's life, you know, and, and so you are needed. And um, I don't know that that would provoke a caretaking codependent response, you know, uh, where certainly the, the member of the community wouldn't have to start trying to caretake the superior in order to get out of it, it probably wouldn't work with that kind of a healthy superior. But there's no question that those dynamics of obedience can be used in a very unhealthy way, a very oppressive way, uh, especially by an unhealthy leader who is not consulting, who is not dialoguing. Uh, you know, that, that could be happening. And it's especially true that an unhealthy leader could provoke a codependent response in people in a community when Let's say the community would be trying to shield this addiction from the awareness of others. Okay, that would be a much more likely scenario than the whole obedience thing for a codependency to develop in a community is where you just have a person who's unhealthy at the top. And whenever you have a hierarchical situation and the leader is unhealthy and, and the leader is, you know, really representing the community in a lot of circumstances, then the community will want in some way to shield the consequences from the community, from the larger community. This is much more, uh, well, well that's much more common. Well, I, I don't know as much about the whole obedience thing and my very limited experience with religious communities is that they seem to be using the uh, obedience uh, dynamic uh, in a much more consultative kind of context, maybe than they did in days of old. But uh, I would suspect it's quite rare to find a, a superior who just doesn't consult and says, you do this and you do that, and you know, bosses people around uh, by invoking the vow of obedience. I don't know if that fits for those of you who live in religious community, uh, you have any comment on that. But uh, does that answer your your question? I think it is more of a dialogue. I think it was kind of a meeting of both positions. Right. I think the comments 
Okay. Yes. Bill, is there a lot of codependency, I guess, in the workforce with management when you have, I don't know, maybe management might feel responsible for the employee's livelihood, that they overlook a lot of things, and, uh, you know, to, I guess, to allow inefficiencies because you don't want to hurt an individual, or maybe the individual's been employed for many, many years, and if you try to correct situations, the person could lose a job, or their livelihood. I can see you becoming very codependent. Yeah. Area. Managers certainly can be when the manager is kind of, let's say, uh, I don't want to say under the gun, but at least pressured to produce something in a department. Okay. And, uh, and the lack of production reflects back on you, the manager. So you well, could, you could. What if it doesn't even reflect back on you, though, but you can donate? because you don't want to disrupt something or, or disrupt an individual. Yeah, right. Well, there, there certainly is a sense in which the failure to confront situations that need to be confronted can contribute to some codependent dynamics in the workforce. Wherever you know, we avoid that, we allow irresponsibility and unhealthiness to be permitted. And depending on what, you know, you really, it's hard to generalize about some of this, uh, but I've certainly seen enough of it, even at a retreat center where I work, uh, where let's say a person starts slipping on the job and you make small allowances for it, and then first thing you know, someone else is moving in to cover for that, and they do that often enough that they start to feel that that's part of their job description, and the, the biggest danger, or the most immediate danger, is that boundaries become confused. Okay, you know what I mean by boundaries? I mean what's, what's mine to do and what's yours to do. But what happens in this situation between old Billy and Sally is what can happen in any situation, even in the workplace, where I'm no longer clear about what's my problem and what's your problem. In the unhealthiest of situations, which some managers will even create, they'll even say this, is that what's your problem is my problem. What's my problem is your problem. <laughs> okay? Uh, that um, they're trying to kind of say we're all in this together, but on the other hand, everybody feels responsible for everyone else's inadequacies and failures, and you know, you, you might carry some unnecessary guilt for something you didn't even do. Now whenever we start to be unclear about boundaries, then we start to enter into a relational pattern that these two people exhibit. It's called enmeshment. Okay? You might, those of you who've seen the book Lessons in Loving, and I know you've all seen it from the outside, <laughs> maybe some of you have even seen it from the inside, would see that a, a healthy relationship would look like this. The two people would be connected but separate. Well, in an unhealthy relationship, you know, they would look like this, where they're connected but there's no separation. And what gives us separation is boundaries. And when boundaries are lost, then we're all in each other's business and having a lot of feelings about that. Yes? Isn't there a genetic connection with Sally's position? Sally was the alcoholic. In her, in her family? There could be, yeah. Uh, 
I just made a little passing reference to that whole topic of genetics and alcoholism, but there's a, you know, a, a pretty good body of evidence for a genetic component in alcoholism. And there are several different kinds of genetic factors there. There's a father to son type, and there's a mother to daughter type, and there's a type one and a type two, and like I say, I don't have time to get into all of that, but it's pretty clear that there's something going on. Remember, alcohol is a, it's not a behavior addiction, it's a substance addiction. And that means it comes into the body, and the body has to process this drug. So there, there has to be a, a physiological uh, factor at work in alcoholism that's a little different from codependency, which is a process addiction or relationship addiction, which uh, is more about the mind and, uh, and feeling than it is about the body. So if you don't have this ability to develop a tolerance to alcohol, to like the way it makes you feel, to not have terrible hangovers, if you don't have that, you probably won't become an alcoholic. If you have that, it doesn't mean you will become an alcoholic. But if you drink regularly enough, and uh, we might even say for the wrong reasons, at least for a while, then there's a really good chance that you will develop it. Okay? And there's a lot of evidence for that. Now, so let's say a person comes from a troubled family and they have the genetic thing for alcoholism. There's a good chance they'll become an alcoholic. Let's say a person comes from a troubled family, but they don't have the genetic factor for alcoholism. Well, they just find another addiction. Okay, that's what most people do. Can, can, can compulsive, excessive compulsive behavior in any way relate to this? Sure. Uh, almost all addicts are obsessive compulsive in some way. Now, there is a formal psychiatric diagnosis called obsessive compulsive behavior. That's not always necessarily related to alcoholism or any addiction. You know, the person who has to get up and check the alarm clock 10 times before they go to bed. Uh, and they know they checked it. They get up again and check it just to see if they set it. And they'll go back and lie down. And well, I'll check it one more time to see if it's that, that kind of stuff. It, and there's all kind of, you know, clean the table and then clean it again. And uh, it, it, can, it can be focused in all different kinds of ways. Some of that is uh, an offshoot of addiction, but some of it is a separate psychiatric illness in its own right, and, and I might say a very miserable kind of addiction. Uh, or, well, it's addiction in the sense that you can't stop it, but it's not an addiction in the sense that you're using a fix to get relief from numb feelings, okay? It's just a, a glitch of sorts in the, in the way that information is processed in the brain where you, there's some kind of a loop that's established where you know, you can't turn this thing off. I mean, it's, everybody has the experience of some catchy little advertising song going on in your mind, right? And you don't like it. But eventually, it, it passes away. Uh, but in some people, you know, it goes on for years and years and years. You wake up in the morning, braille cream, a little dabble do you do. And this thing goes on all day, every day, all night, every night for years and years. That, that's misery, isn't it? Sure. Okay. So it's, this, it's a loop source that, gets, that happens there. And they, they, sometimes they can deal with that with drugs that break up the circuits or something. They don't always know what drugs do. They just try things. And some of them work. So they. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions or comments about this? Yes. Uh, 
back to Bill and Sally. We're talking about codependency as a personality trait in a way because you're talking about caretakers. In the situation that you give us with Bill and Sally, Bill is doing what he's doing because he's been brought into it by the family situation. Is he going to turn around and be a codependent with others? Um, or are we just using this as an example, like somebody can be a codependent without having an alcohol? <coughs> yeah, you can learn how to do this. You know, how to relate to others through, we might call them uh, peripheral circumstances or, you know, outside circumstances. Uh, you can learn to do that outside of the context of addiction, sure. And usually, again, if you're doing this in one relationship, then you're probably also doing it in a lot of other relationships. And the, and the first time I, I heard about that was when my own codependency was being confronted in, in a group. We had to be in groups as part of our training. And the counselor said, if you're codependent in one relationship, you're codependent in all your relationships. And I objected to that. And I said, well, I can certainly see where you know, maybe in relationship to this person in my life I was codependent, but I don't think I am in my other relationships. And so she invited me to just take a look and see if some of those dynamics were present. And lo and behold, they were, even in a relationship with God, because we bring ourselves in these relationships, okay? Now, you might not see those dynamics until there's a kind of a stress placed on the relationship. So yeah, if you're around a happy, giving, saintly, holy person, your codependency might not rise to the forefront. But if there's any kind of stress placed on the relationship, here comes the caretaker rescuer, right? This is how we're going to deal with stress in a relationship, is by caretaking. So that's usually when we see you know, the codependency come out, is whenever we're in a stressed relationship. Now, is anybody in here in a relationship that's never stressed? See, that's the problem, right? Uh, I mean, yeah, you might get along reasonably well with your coworkers, but even then sometimes there can be some stress in a relationship. What do we do when there's stress in a relationship? How do we deal with it? Uh, we go person to person, feeling to feeling, thought to thought, you know, or do we go around it and through it and all these dynamics uh, trying to get their goodwill back by doing things and so forth. 